glasses. I'm Bailey. And I'm Katie. Uh, and I guess we're gonna, we're back. <laughs> yeah, we're back. Um, it's been almost a month since we recorded, so I feel like I've forgotten what we do. I definitely have. Um, but also time is an illusion, so it feels like it's been forever and also not that long. And I don't I've know been- which one is right. Absolutely convinced it's Thursday all day. Um, yeah, same. Which is weird though because like it, we're only two days into the week because Memorial Day was on Monday. So like work week wise, it's Tuesday, but then it feels like Thursday. Correct. <sighs> I don't know what's going on whatsoever. Um, I did go to a book signing last night. Yeah, which was super exciting. I went to. The book signing for the podcast, and that's why we drink. They came out with a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a. Uh, it was fun though. I, you were texting me while you were there, and it seemed like it was a really cool experience. Yes. So, their book. I want to make sure I get the title right, um, because it has like you know a lot of words in it, and it, I would feel really silly if I messed up the title of their book i feel that okay it's just a haunted road atlas i don't know why i thought that was complicated it does have a subtitle though like sinister stops dangerous destinations and true crime tales by okay christine i can Schieffer. see why you thought that that was a lot of words yeah it's by christine Schieffer and m schultz who are the the host of and that's why we drink and so it was very exciting to get to meet them because i've been listening to their podcast for a very long time. It was like one of the mm-hmm. first podcasts I got into and was in part an inspiration for me wanting to do my own podcast, which I did <laughs> tell them last night. They were very sweet about. So if you don't already listen to And That's Why We Drink, it is like a paranormal story. That's what M tells. And then Christine tells a true crime story, but they tend to be like, I don't know, less serious and dark than some of the other true crime ones. So, you know. Shout out to And That's Why We Drink. Give them a listen. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, well, I'm really glad that you got to do that because I know how much you love them. So that's awesome. Yeah. Katie, what have you been up to? Uh, well, <laughs> many life events. Um, I finished my software engineering boot camp on Friday and I started my new job on Tuesday. So Ooh. no rest for the wicked, as they say. So this week I'm just um, getting onboarded and starting my new job. It's really exciting. Everyone is so like nice and kind and the, the company culture just seems like a really, really good fit. So I'm really excited to be starting. I'm so excited for you two to have like this new new adventure. Mm-hmm. And also money coming in again is going to be really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Can't forget that aspect. Yay, capitalism. <laughs> Yay, capitalism, for sure. Um, um, I do want to point out to those of you that can't see Katie, it is June 1st when we're recording. Nothing like a last minute crew. So Katie is wearing <laughs> her pride shirt today. I am. I have uh, one of the pride shirts from Target's collection this year. It's the one that looks like a roller rink print. Um, and then all of the fun designs have different pride flags on them. So they're happy super pride fun. Month. Yeah. I was really excited about this one. We actually spent a solid like 20 minutes texting each other back and forth <laughs> about the Target pride collection when it dropped. We do have matching fanny packs. We, of course, have matching fanny packs. They're so cute. They're like black with like a rainbow detailing on the zipper. I love it. Yes. So. 
very exciting. It's always, you know, rainbow capitalism, bad, because all capitalism is bad. But I do like having cute things for brands, Yes. So. <laughs> rainbow capitalism, bad, but damn, do they get me. <laughs> they do. They do. The one the one that I really couldn't resist, um, and Bailey knows this, is they had one that had, like, the finger guns with the bisexual flag on it. Like, I cannot resist a bisexual finger guns reference. I'm sorry. So I do have that shirt also. It Like... <laughs> It was so fast. She's like, the day that drops, I am getting the bisexual finger guns. And then I did. So. Correct. (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, Very excited to be in Pride Month. Yeah, I can't wait to see other collections. I haven't really looked that much. Um, I kept trying to, like, online shop while I was in Greece and kept getting redirected to, like, the EU sites or the Greek sites mm -hmm. for shopping, which was not as fun, but did save me money. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I do and- think nothing can possibly top last year's on Amazon's Pride collection. They had that um, hoodie that said "Yeet" with the bisexual <laughs> flag on it. I think that is the best piece of Pride merch to exist ever. So the Yeet hoodie um, yeeted me <laughs> into space with with laughter. Um. Anyways. Any more life updates, or should we uh, should we get to the subject matter at hand? No, I think we should hard transition out of Pride Month and into one of possibly the most heterosexual books I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely, we logged onto the the call, and Katie was like, "I asked her if she was wearing her Pride shirt. <laughs> she said yes." she's like wow it's very thematic but not for this book not for this book at all not at all for the book just for the time just for the time we're recording yeah uh it is a very heterosexual book i have not read any other nora roberts books but i assume they're all pretty heterosexual given that she's like primarily a romance author yeah i think that that's true so uh spoiler warning i guess for for year one we originally were just going to talk about the first one but then i did end up reading the entire trilogy in two days um because it really it really caught me and bailey i know you have read the whole trilogy but you only reread the first one right so you might be a little blended with what goes on where correct because we only talked about reading the first one and so uh i only i only read the first one yeah, it was kind of a it was a kind of a last minute decision for me to just like keep going. So, yeah, I mean, I I have previously read the other books. Um, I'm trying to see when, but I must. Oh, my Goodreads logged me out. That's why. Oh, Dolly is not happy with your Goodreads. Dolly, we have that in common. Um, <laughs> mostly because I don't know my password. I did read the original year one like the first book in 2019 and then i pres- i think that i read of blood and bone pretty much right after and then i had to wait for um rise of magics to be released okay i think it was released in like late 2019 so probably around that time um i typed in of blood and bone and it pulled up house of earth and blood no, do not make me revisit Sarah J. Moss. This is a... Pride Month is a Sarah J. Moss free zone. Uh, in this household, every month is a Sarah J. Moss free zone. <laughs> but especially Pride Month. Especially Pride Month. Okay, yeah, I read... The third one was released in November of 2019. So I okay. bet you read it around then. 
It appears that I read the second one in November of 2019. And then probably, yeah, the third one. I finished it in early December. Okay. So. Yeah, cool. so, uh, so I have not read the years. second. Yeah, I was going to say I haven't read the second or the third since late 2019. So things are going to be, I'm going to remember events, but they're going to be, I'm not going to remember which book it was in or exact details. Yeah, and honestly, um, for the second and third one, I read them pretty much like back to back in a span of about nine hours on audiobook. Um, so uh, that those two are going to probably blur together even for me, even though I read them uh two days ago so perfect so it's yeah as katie said spoiler warning we're gonna go into uh the entire series which is called the chronicle the chronicles of the one mm-hmm. is like the series name yes so we'll do a very rapid fire uh summary your your patented prose tinted glasses summary you know how good we are at these uh, but i did i wrote down the point so i'm hoping we can just fly through them and not get too distracted like we normally do time will tell (laughs) bailey do you want to take the first book um and then i can take the second two since i read them or do you just want me to run through it no i'll go with the first one so the first one is called year one Mm -hmm. uh it is taking place in a world that is pretty similar to ours but there is like illusions to some people having like minor powers and then there is a pandemic that starts with one guy who gets on a plane and gives it to everybody and it was very weird having read this see i'm getting distracted i'm stopping (laughs) the pandemic is like decimating the population at an insane level the beginning of the book is mostly starting in new york city and so we're seeing the um destruction of new york city and the breakdown and these magical beings which get nicknamed uncannies seem to be immune um, and so they are staying alive through this. We have three main groups, a reporter, Arliss, her tech guy, Chuck. Chuck is a basement dweller. Love Chuck. A, Katie put it this way, so I'm going to quote it. A plucky fairy named Fred who just found out she's a fairy. She's very excited about her wings. Um, and the other group is an EMT named Jonah, Rachel the doctor, a new mother, Katie, twins Duncan and Antonio... And then Hannah, whose mother died during an emergency C-section. And the final group is a witch, Lana, whose powers have gotten a lot stronger since the Doom. And her lover, Max, who had stronger powers before the Doom. I didn't say this. The Doom is the name of the pandemic. Um, They meet up with Eddie, his dog, Joe. And then a group of kids that are associated with Max's brother, Eric. They're all trying to survive... Not only, like, the pandemic, but the raiders and the bad people who are out there trying to just live in the purge, live out their purge dreams. Um, Eric and his girlfriend are doing black magic, try to kill everybody. Lana is pregnant with The One, capital The One. Um, Most people escape. Jonah, Rachel, Katie... And the babies are also escaping. Arliss, Chuck, and Fred escape. And they all end up in New Hope, which is this settlement that was pretty much started by the Jonah, Rachel, Katie, Arliss, Chuck, Fred group that Max, Lana, and Eddie eventually get to. They're learning to build this new community. And then, surprise, Eric and Allegra are back, still doing black magic. 
Um, they kill Max, Lana flees, finds Simon Swift, gives birth to Fallon, falls in love, and then survives for 13 years. The end. Yeah, so that was the end of the first book. Um, it was very, I guess, we'll, I'll save my commentary for later. You will see, I as I wrote out these plot points, I started to editorialize a little bit more. So I'll probably be editorializing a little bit more by the end of book three. But anyway, start of book two of Blood and Bone. It basically is an elongated Fallon being the one training montage. Um, the baby is named Fallon, who is named after her birth father, Max Fallon. So her name is Fallon Swift after her birth father. And then Simon Swift is her like adopted father that she grew up with, that Lana fell in love with. Um, and they live on a farm. She lives with her parents and three younger brothers. And they live a nice, like pleasant life on a farm. And when she turns 13, this, like, ancient wizard guy named Malik shows up. And he had, like, shown up previously to warn them that this was happening. He was like, you're going to live in peace for 13 years and then she needs to come with me to train. If she wants to, she got to make the choice. But she goes to train with Malik um, on his, at his house. Um, she grows a lot stronger in her magic. She learns strategy. She learns combat. She also finds her three familiars i think is how they're referred to i don't know she makes friends with an owl a wolf and an alicorn which is like a unicorn with wings um and they're all like ancient powerful spirits who are now like bonded to her um she also makes friends with an elf boy named mick who loves her but she's just not that into him is more than a friend um and that's all, like, during her little training montage. Meanwhile, everybody in New Hope is just, like, pairing up very heterosexually and, like, having tons of babies. <laughs> um, it's true. It's it really... I, I have thoughts on it, and we'll, we can expand later. But that's yeah, what's happening in that. New Hope. Meanwhile, uh, the, ba- the original babies from the first book, Duncan and Tonya, who are the twins, and Hannah, who is the adopted infant, are all just, like grown up kicking ass Duncan and Tonya have magical powers and Hannah is like training to be a doctor and they all rock a girl named Petra comes to New Hope after they rescue a bunch of people from a cult basically and so she they she's posing as someone who was rescued from the cult and she's posing as this really like meek subservient like babe in the woods type trying to like basically get Duncan to fall in love with her I think but turns out she's actually evil and she is Eric and Allegra's evil daughter and she is there to be evil and so she causes some havoc but then escapes and then Fallon completes her training she goes home to her family and stays with them for a while and starts training her younger brothers to be soldiers and at least to like have combat experience and eventually her whole family travels towards New Hope, trying to recruit soldiers along the way to her cause, which is kind of nebulous, but her cause is just like, she's the one and she's going to make everything better. And that's more or less the end of the second book. Again, this all kind of, this all kind of blends together into the third book, um, which is The Rise of Magics. And now they're, they're all like headquartered in New Hope and um, like the war is happening, I guess. Um, I, I taglined this book a war, but it's easy and they keep winning. Um, again, it's a little bit of editorializing there. Fallon finds leadership, a difficult burden, but also ultimately faces 
like very few challenges and just like wins every battle like she argues with the adults but then eventually they just like agree with her and do what she says and they win She's establishing training centers across the country to train other soldiers to fight against the purity warriors who are like the bigot cult guys who think that all magical beings need to be killed. Um, And then also like the trio of evil guys, which is like Eric and Allegra and Petra and like everybody who's just like using dark magic for reasons. They take back Arlington and DC, which DC is said to be like kind of a dead city. Like it's not even really a symbol of like government anymore. It's like so like run down and run out. Um, and then they're working towards taking back New York, which is sort of like become the center of like dark magical power. They form an alliance with a fancy, morally gray queen lady from Quebec, who's also a shifter, who turns into a dragon. Her name is, uh, I think, Vivian, and she is very cool. And the evil guys also have an evil dragon. I don't really remember much about it. Um, Also, Eric died at some point. I think that might have been at the end of book two. Fallon and everyone capture the, like, bigot cult leader of the Purity Warriors named Jeremiah. Um, But it turns out that he has actually been dead for years. And Allegra and Eric, before he died, were, like, pretending to be him and, like, stoking hate for magical creatures most of the time for their own, like, I think, honestly, amusement. But also because, like, having people be afraid of Fallon, like, benefited their evil plan. Right. But Allegra had spent so much power, like, disguising herself as him that she's, like, used most of it up and ends up being killed by the good guys. And so now evil daughter daughter Petra is, like, mega pissed. Fallon, Duncan, and Antonia keep, like, doing heroic shit behind everyone's backs, like, behind all the adults' backs. And it's, like, making everybody angry, but there's just, like, no consequence to this. They keep, like, going out to, like... They, like, destroy nuclear weapons by just, like, transmattering them into something else or something. And they keep, like, traveling around the world doing that and getting back. And parent- all the parents are like, you should have told us. And they're like, sorry. And then they just keep doing it and nothing ever comes of it. Other than, you know, nukes being destroyed. They figure out that they to defeat Petra, they have to kill the dragon. So um, they convince the dragon queen to tell them how to kill a dragon. And then... Fallon, Duncan, Antonia, and Hannah kill the dragon, and then they kill Petra, and they win. And then Fallon and Duncan live happily ever after. That's been kind of a whole thing for the the last two books. They, like, are fated to be in love, um, and they, like, kind of fight against it, because they, like, who wants to do what they're fated to do? But then they do anyway. Really, the only major casualty since Max Fallon died is that um, her friend Mick the Elf died, which which was pretty sad. And then also Joe the Dog died and that made me cry that is yeah that's Mm -hmm. pretty much the most of it i think i hate it um (laughs) i forgot i forgot that joe died yeah it was not and it was it was it was extra sad because so one of fallon's younger brothers is like an animal empath i can't remember which one it is uh, or what his name is but so like there's this whole scene where the younger brother is like helping keep Joe alive and also like reading his thoughts and it's he's like Joe is like holding on until Eddie can let him go 
and so he's like he'll hold on if you need him to but like he's ready to go but he he, like he needs you to let him go and it was very sad (laughs) oh the face that bailey's making is very representative of my feelings so i um realized that i kind of forgot like, now that you're saying it, I remember the third book, but I genuinely just forgot 90% of the plot of the third <laughs> book. Um, and definitely part of that was because I didn't want to remember that Joe died because Joe the dog is a very important character. When I was summarizing, I almost said he was my favorite character, but I was, like, trying not to editorialize. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I can input that now. Justice for Joe. Justice for Joe, for sure. He Joe the dog rocked. And... He was very sweet, and I made both my dogs cuddle me for a long time after I read that part. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the second book of Blood and Bone is definitely the book that I remember the most of the plot from. When I was rereading year one, I was like, you know, 70% through, and I was like, okay, but like, when do we get like the one? Forgetting that the one doesn't really come into this until the second book, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, the whole first book is set up, and that's not, like, a bad thing. I don't mean that in a bad way, but the whole first book is getting all of these characters into place for the one. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a lot of thoughts. Like, I I think a lot of this is going to come off as overly critical, or at least as, like, pretty critical. And I don't mean it to not be critical, but I do want to say that I really, I really enjoyed the whole trilogy. I especially enjoyed... I think the first two books. Um, I was I, like, gonna say I like couldn't I like couldn't put it down right. Like I finished the first one and I was like, well, I know we were only supposed to read the first one, but I've got a few days before we're scheduled to record, so I just decided to push through and finish the other two. And I read two and three back to back. You know, I was really engrossed in it, um, but I do have thoughts. Tm. I definitely think the third book is the weakest for me too, from what I remember. Mm-hmm. I am kind of glad that you read all three because um, I was just going to, like, summarize the second two based off of internet synopses since I didn't have time to read them. But this will be actually, like, a lot more fun to talk about it all. And for me, rereading the first one, like, after now living through a pandemic Mm -hmm. was very weird compared to... Super uncomfy. Like, November 2019, I had (laughs) no idea what was coming and the doom was like yeah 100% death rate and killed within like 72 hours mm-hmm. so obviously not the same thing as the covid-19 pandemic but still like just a different level of emotional connection to the terror for the first couple chapters of that first book yeah it's like the doom was way deadlier and way scarier in that regard but in terms of like the the fear of like how quickly it spread like that felt very similar to covid um there were lots of descriptions of like gloves and like surgical masks selling out which obviously we knew that that happened um even kind of the the feeling of like fleeing population centers like i know people really like were trying to get out of new york city to like get somewhere more spread out where they were you know less likely to get covid all of that felt very true in a very uncomfortable way yes um the toilet paper crises did not get predicted which is forgivable but (laughs) yeah a lot of the other stuff felt very uncomfortably accurate in in retrospect for experiencing something like this especially with new york city being like one of the original epicenters Mm -hmm. 
in within the United States. So I didn't I don't want to dwell on the pandemic aspect of it because I feel like that's not actually the important part of like what leads us to the the, pan, the rest of the the happenings. Um, yeah, but if- I feel like honestly, after like the first like twenty five percent of the book, really like everyone who was going to get the disease did and died already, and so like it kind of ceases to be like a factor into the plot other than like oh that's what happened to get us here yeah the doom was just like the plot device to kill off all of the unimportant people we don't care about mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we're left Truly. with the magical people um which is which is fine because that's the part that i like about the book is the magical people and their their adventures traveling and trying to survive mm-hmm Yeah, definitely. I think that one of the most interesting things about, like, this trilogy as a whole and, like, how it's constructed is that, like, book one is, like, about adults and, like, books two and three are no longer about adults. Um, It's, like, almost like the series takes a hard turn into YA, um, but, like, doesn't, like, wholly even commit to that. I don't know. It's really weird. I have... I'm not sure how to quite articulate my thoughts, but, like, I think the whole series is what I would call, like, YA-appropriate. Like, it's not necessarily, like, geared to YA. Um, There is a little bit of, like, gore, and there's, like, allusions to to things that, like, the bands of raiders do that's really dark. But for the most part, most of the, like, content, most of the dialogue is all very YA-appropriate. Even some of the sex stuff is, like older YA reasonable. Oh, like, for sure. Yeah, like, there's there's explicit sex, but it's not, like, in, inappropriate. It's not spice. Yeah, no, it's, like, Lana and Max have sex because they're, like, adults in love, mm-hmm. and it's, it's actually more focused on, like, the feeling of her magic associated with it and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, like, it's not quite fade to black sex, but it's, like, it's just about... You know? Yeah, it, it's, like, explicit that they're having sex, which Fade to Black doesn't do, mm-hmm. but it also doesn't actively describe any of the sex. Yeah, there's no v- velvet-wrapped steel type of language. <sighs> Katie, <laughs> June, and all other months are Sarah J. Moss-free zones. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. In I this household. <laughs> and um, even though there was a pandemic and there were probably lots of people dying, there were no screams drowning out. Or, uh, sorry, <laughs> moans drowning out the screams of the dying. Yeah. Anyway, so, so this, is, this is a, a novel that if you have, like, an older YA reader, this isn't going to be out of the question for them to, to be introduced to this, especially because, yes, the later two get a little more YA, especially with Fallon's romance. Yeah, it just, it feels very strange to me that, like, the first book was centered around adults, and then the second book hard shifts to the protagonist being a 13-year-old. And it makes, like, books two and three really follow Fallon. Like, the first book had a really rich, like, like set of characters, and we were bouncing between different perspectives of all of these, like, rich, interesting adult characters. And then books two and three is, like, I would say, like, both are about 80%. Fallon POVs like there's an occasional one from like her teacher or like you flash over to Duncan and especially book three has a little bit more of like Lana perspectives brought back in but like it's it's Fallon's story from book two onward and it seems it's just a really weird tonal shift 
to go from like to have two books that are like very YA centric and then like the first book feels kind of like this weirdly out of place prequel yeah it's definitely a different tone and I think that the first book is very rich for having the multiple point of views that all end up converging and they all arrive to New Hope in like very different ways so it feels like it's telling all of these different experiences of the doom and survival and then we get 13 year old learning to use magic and navigating relationships Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting, especially the first book also focuses a lot more on like survival and politics and all things that are really big strengths of the first book, like the politics of navigating this settlement and like blending like magical and non-magical people and like people who don't want to hurt anybody and like bigots who want to hurt magical people. And, like, navigating how you found a society, like, basically from scratch was all really fascinating. And I don't feel like that was expanded upon, I guess, in the later books. No, it was just kind of, I don't want to say, like, forgotten. Because there's still definitely aspects of them sorting out living in New Hope. But you really jump 13 years forward. And so you miss a lot of the, like, missteps that presumably were made in, like, creating this gigantic functioning community. Mm-hmm. that Fallon then, like, visits. So I, it it's all the same story, but it feels like it's two different novels. Like, two yeah. different, yeah. It definitely does. And it, fe- like, it feels like part of a same shared universe, but not necessarily, like, a shared storyline, I guess. Like, it, it is, but, like... Fallon's story feels, like, disconnected from year one. Yeah, which clearly was not the intent because they, like, talk about the one repeatedly in year one. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, it, it does, you're right. It feels like an author revisiting a world later to, like, add on. It, it like, honestly, it genuinely feels like the, the second and third book storyline of, like, Fallon being the one. Or I think that... This is how it would like normally happen in a different property, right? Like, are we rewriting a book three, again? No, not really. I'm just sort of like, it feels like books two and three are the original story, and they're like, how can we get more out of this world? Oh, I know. Like, how did the ones' parents like get to where they were? So it almost feels like it was released backwards from from at least how this kind of thing is usually written, right? Like, you see it in Star Wars, like right now the Obi-Wan Kenobi show is like releasing, which I know you don't really do Star Wars, but um, it's really cute so far. I watched the first two episodes. Johnny wants to use me as a go-between to have a discussion with you about how you feel about it. (laughs) Okay. I would love to do that later. We can take that offline. (laughs) (laughs) But it's basically, um, it's centered around obi-wan kenobi and he's like trying to rescue like a baby leia basically or like a 10 year old child leia and it's this thing where like that was not ever referenced in like the original trilogy like sure you can kind of slot it in like they're they're like making stories just so that we can get more obi-wan kenobi content you know what i mean and that's sort of how this feels too 
Yeah, not to sidetrack too hard into Star Wars, but isn't that what a lot of current Star Wars material is? Is creating oh, yeah. stories that are getting... Okay, okay. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I could see that if you released, like, a, a duology of Fallon Swift. Mm-hmm. And then later you were like, here's a prequel mm-hmm. that explains... Because, like, if I read a book, a YA novel, that was 13 years after The Doom, I would be totally curious about The Doom. But also if it was written well... I wouldn't be super worried. I wouldn't be like, oh my god, I need to get the backstory. But then if the author, like, published that book, I'd I'd be there to pick it up. I'd be like, hell Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's exactly how it feels to me, I guess. And just because it it just, like, feels so disconnected in the, like, main characters of the storyline and then also in, like, tonally, like, the age range of the main characters, I guess. Hopefully all that makes sense. I don't know. It does. Because, again, like, I, like I said, I definitely conflated some of the things happening in, like, the first and second books, but I forgot a lot of the third book, and I think that's just because it kind of changes the scope of, like, the entire stuff. Like, the first book is happening, like, somewhat globally because it is the Doom but not really. We're focused pretty tightly on our, like, little groups. And then the second book is focused, like, pretty tightly on Fallon and their issues with um, Eric and Allegra and Petra. But then the third book now all of a sudden is, like, a global contest against these purity people. And they're, like, as you said, going around using, like, um, time warp travel to destroy nukes. And it's like that the scale of impact there is so much greater than just these little communities fighting for their survival. Yeah, but it's it's it never really feels like it's taking advantage of that full scale. Right. Like, that's one of the main problems I have is that they set up all of this like stuff that could be really really interesting politically and then just like don't follow through on it, I guess, or like don't take it to its full potential. Like all of the stuff with, like, the Dragon Queen of Quebec, like, she was a very interesting character. It was very clear that they, like, didn't fully trust her and that, like, making an alliance with her was dangerous. But then they, there just, like, was no political fallout or intrigue. They were just like, we don't really like her or trust her. Like, her people seem to like her. Like, she seems to be a good leader, but she doesn't do it how we do it. We don't know if we should trust her. But let's just trust her and it'll be fine. And then it just is fine. I think I agree with that pretty heavily. And it feels like we don't get a lot of build into this being a global stakes game. Mm-hmm. We just get, like, here is now all of a sudden again. Like, we're doing this big thing and it's like you know maybe um it just doesn't need to be global also i forgot to even put this in my book three recap because it made no difference apparently but after um her friend mick the elf is killed um fallon like decides to go off the grid and she's like i need a few days to myself but i think she ends up being gone for weeks and she just like travels which by the way in this book they can like travel by they call it flashing like it's just teleporting um but so that's she, the like, word i was looking for i said time warp travel i meant <laughs> teleporting i was like i don't i kind of caught that and i was like i don't know what that is but i'll just i meant we'll just teleporting okay um so they 
she is just like traveling around the world being like sad that her friend died and like there were layers to it because he had been in love with her and she couldn't give that to him and then he saw her being in love with Duncan and he felt bad about that and so she like felt like she had never been able to like give him what he wanted out of their like relationship or whatever but so she just is traveling around the world um and she comes back and she's like, I saw all these things all around the world and like how other people are doing it in other countries and like what the world looks like. And we actually, we don't get to see any of that. Like, honestly, that probably could have been an entire book. Fallon like actually like getting that self-discovery and like seeing how other places are handling everything that's going on. I'm starting to wonder the more we talk about this and break this down, if this series was Nora Roberts having like a bunch of ideas that clearly wouldn't work in a traditional romance novel and then just like really struggling to fit them into this series. I can see that. I can definitely see that. Because there's a lot of elements that are good but don't feel as fleshed out as like I would maybe want them. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I'm obviously a fan of pretty hefty fantasy novels and so I wouldn't have minded had any of these books been longer. But uh, with her publishing history and her audience, I'm assuming that, like, an 800-page chunker is not what they really go for. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, yeah, this that, is all, that makes sense. This is all happening as we're talking, me thinking about things like this, where it's, like... And just, like, extreme speculation. But, I mean, what yeah. else are you here for? Right. And just... I there's There's, again, so much that happens here that we're going to come back to every time you're going to say something, I'm going to be like, yeah, it's because I feel like that part wasn't, it didn't reach the potential it could have. And I think that's just what we're seeing with the dragon queen with Fallon flashing all over the world and seeing all these different communities with all of this. It's just like, Oh, okay. There could have been so much more here, but in, in the interest of keeping this book to a reasonable medium length, we don't get all of that development. I think a lot of that is why it feels more like a YA novel to me almost is because there's like all of these concepts that are just not expanded upon in like, I mean, I mean, we've said this both in different ways, but it's just, she sets up all these really interesting um, possibilities and doesn't follow all the way through with really any of them. Yes, and I don't know if it gets more fleshed out in the second book, but in the first book, they did, like, an accounting of the different types of, like, magical humans they had in New Hope, but then we don't see a lot more of that. Maybe I guess you do, because you see, like, Fallon's brothers have more of different types, but, like, in the first book, it's clear that she had all the ideas for these different types of magical powers, and we, we see, like, three of them. We see, like, Max and Chuck and Lana and Fred. Yeah, there definitely are, are references to more, and I don't have a huge issue with that. Like, they reference, like, mer people. they reference, um, I mean, shifters, and then we've got fairies, we've got witches, we've got elves. Yeah, I just, I, again, maybe this is me coming from a fantasy side and, like, reading um, a romance author's foray into fantasy, that, like, I want all of the nitty-gritty details about, like, the world and the different types of magic in it and it's not necessary to the story so i'm not like mad about it i'm just like oh we could have had more information about this mm-hmm. yeah i agree 
I also, another thing that I forgot to put in my book three um, recap is that they, like, were filling up prisons with, like, the bigots or whatever. And they're like, we have too many people to be in prison. So they were talking about starting, like, prison colonies on islands um, and, like, basically doing Australia again. Full circle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which I just thought was kind of funny. And, and, like, honestly, it was, like, a good solution. They weren't going to do it for any of the, like, really heinous criminals. But for the the people, they're like, we can't just keep these people in prison anymore. (laughs) Like, we don't have the room or the supplies. They're just going to plop them on an island. Yeah, again, I completely forgot about, like, the prison subplot. And to me, that just, like, doesn't fit with the way the first two novels felt. That now Mm -hmm. all of a sudden we've got, like, these kids from New Hope making decisions about, like, prisoners. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's very, like, YA... 15 year old assassin becomes queen and suddenly like is making decisions to run a country while she blatantly ignores all of the adults around her Mm -hmm. yeah i do think i think fallon did a pretty good job actually taking um advice and like asking for help from the adults i think she did a little bit of that like what I mentioned in the recap where like she would just go off and not tell anybody and they're like, Hey, we're your parents and we care about you. And she was like, sorry. And, but then like, it just felt like, I don't feel like there were any stakes in this book, like, or in this trilogy. Like, I guess that's what I mean. Ultimately with the, like nothing being fleshed out and the scope feeling wrong is that I don't believe any of the stakes of Fallon making decisions about bigot prisoners. Yeah, like, the only two, like, major deaths other than R.I.P., our boy Joe, um, was Max Fallon in the end of the first book, which is Fallon's dad, and it was it was so clear that he was gonna die, like, from the word go. Like, from very early on in the book, I was like, oh, he is not surviving this book. Well, and the super um, lead, like, he becomes this super leader who's, like, good at everything, manages people really well, yeah, mm-hmm. And also just, like, the the flags and, like, his relationship with Lana and, um, you know, it was his brother that turned evil. It, he, he was just very clearly going to die the whole time. And then Mick dying hurt, but, like, he was, like, a, he was like a third-tier character. Like, we only he, learn about him from Fallon's point of view. And Fallon is basically saying, like... I think you're a great person and I care about you, but I don't care about you in that way. And so as readers, we're like, not conditioned, but we we don't care about him because Fallon doesn't care about him in the same way that she cares about these other characters that have Mm -hmm. more of an emotional impact were they to die. Yeah. So like that death like hurt and it was like a little bit surprising um, and it obviously hurt Fallon and like drove her to like rethink her life or whatever. But like it didn't affect me very much as a reader. And then... At no point was I scared of anyone else dying. No, because it never felt like, as you said, in the first 25% of the first book, it was like, okay, everybody who, like, was going to die from the the pandemic did, so now we have our cast of characters of everybody who's left. And so if she was going to have killed anybody off other than that, it would have been, like, along the way in the first book when they're trying to survive, but she doesn't kill anyone important then. Sure, they, like, lose people. But even Eddie gets shot and, like, survives because Eddie and Joe are, like, their new BFFs. Yeah, and, like, one of Fallon's brothers gets his arm chopped off and then she just, like, takes leather and, like, does a spell and then, like, that leather just becomes his arm. 
um, which was kind of cool. But it was like he like that was like a big moment. Like oh no, and like he was the oldest brother, like her like next youngest sibling, the oldest of the boys, and he had like he was like leading portions of the army or whatever. So he was like oh like losing his arm was a big deal, but. She just, like, fixed it, which was a cool way to, like, show how, like, fucking powerful she was. Um, but, but like, lowers even the so, stakes. it was like, well, he's not dead, so it's you, whatever. Yeah, it lowers the stakes because it, it makes everything seem imminently fixable because mm-hmm. she's so powerful. I, w- I wouldn't say it's, like, Mary Sue yet, but it's, like, it, the stakes don't feel as real when you fix major problems. Yeah, I think they did a pretty good job avoiding her being too much of a Mary Sue because of because of how good the like training montage really was. I know we haven't really spent that much time talking about it, but like her time spent training with Malik, um, you know, she made mistakes, she learned, she grew from it. I think she ultimately like I think it probably was a little bit too easy overall, but like she did have stumbles and so she didn't like feel too op i guess um but she ultimately was too op and so it was like i there was just i didn't think that they were gonna lose like and they really didn't take any like major blows like i think it would have been so interesting if like the queen from Canada, like, gave them bad information because she, like, didn't want them to know how to kill a dragon because she was a dragon. Or, you know, they really just, like, didn't face any major setbacks other than, like, vague talking, like, talking about, like, oh, we lost, like, 2,000 troops in this battle, but we won the battle and we took the city and, Yeah, but we don't know who the 2,000 are, so it's just, like, a number on a page. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it. I don't know. I th- I think it's fun and it's readable and it's enjoyable. Like, don't get me wrong. I enjoyed the books, but I think it's missing the level of stakes that I normally enjoy in books where there could be something, yeah, like we face a big defeat, so we have to overcome this. And part of that, it's a, just, I guess, a continuation of, of Fallon's training to like learn to be defeated this badly and still go on. Because when Mick dies, I guess that's the closest thing she gets is she goes on her little introspection journey. And that's off page. Yep. I think also, like, a huge weakness is, like, the motivations of the bad guys, right? Like, I do find, like, the, the like, bigots to have kind of interesting motivation. Like, not interesting, but it, it at least is, like, an interesting challenge for um, the main characters. Because, like, how do you fight bigotry right and that's something that we see in real life and it's something that's like applicable to real life and so it's interesting to see it in a fantasy setting and see like how they try and like combat that kind of motivation but like eric and allegra and patra like dead ass they just like use dark magic which again it was already such a like vague fucking concept in the book like they never nobody goes into like what the dark magic is or whatever but they use dark magic and so they just fucking love being evil and like that's their whole motivation there's no commentary on bigotry it's Mm -hmm. used as a main point but there's like no commentary in that which i there doesn't need to be necessarily for something to work but yeah the the bigotry is the only motivation and that just doesn't 
like feel... bigotry again I, like i get that like bigotry comes out of fear right and like they're afraid of the magic people and like there are really bad magic people doing really bad things so i understand being afraid of that so like i understand like where the bigotry comes from even if it's not like the most creative motivation but like eric and petra and allegra aren't even bigots they're just like people who love being evil right and in the first book like lana well eddie is the first one to find out but he just like comes upon this like black circle in the earth and then the next time they see it is when eric and allegra are trying to kill them there's no exploration of how they got there or why they're doing this it's just like allegra being selfish about eating all their supplies and then all of a sudden they they do black magic and they are dead set on killing max and lana and everybody else mm-hmm also, I did notice that you skipped over my note when you were recapping the first book, um, but I spelled Eric with a K in all of my notes. So I have not, I did not read the book. I listened to it. And so I don't know how it's spelled, but I was like, Eric with a K or Eric with a C. For some reason, I heard it with a K. So in yes. my mind, he is Eric with a K. I honestly don't remember. So I'm opening my Kindle app right now so I can tell you. <laughs> okay, good. I think it's probably because... a C, but he just feels eviler with a K genuinely cannot remember <laughs> i feel like it just wasn't important to me so you know I, why would it be <sighs> i wonder what it's, it might take me a little while to find the first instance of like eric being listed okay. but yeah i didn't mean to skip over that it just felt extra i don't know i was trying no, yeah, to yeah it was it was, was editorializing keep my summary tight. And it was also like my um my note and so it makes sense that you skipped over it but i just thought it was funny i also think that like fallon's purpose as the one like i don't know i don't know if like the one narratives just like aren't doing it for me anymore but there was like I don't understand why Fallon was the one. I don't understand, like, what the one needed to do. Like, what the ultimate purpose of the one was other than, like, leading people. Like, she really didn't do anything extra special. Like, she and her friends killed a dragon and then killed Petra together. But, like, none of that was, like, inherently tied to her oneness. Um, and there was just absolutely, like, no subversion of the trope of the one. She just was the one, and that was just, like, the end of it. Um, except for, like, maybe, maybe, maybe. It, like, initially, it was, like, she and Duncan and Antonia all had to go, because they, like, the three of them had to go. And then Hannah ended up also going so that she could help um, her brother and sister as, like, a medic. So there were, like, four of them instead of three. But, like... What even, like, why did there even have to be three of them to begin with if that was, like, not the prophecy? I don't know. It just, like, felt very flimsy. Yeah, I I agree for as much as the series is, like, named and based around her being the one, I just don't care, Yeah, I guess. It's like, I liked her. She was, a, she was an interesting main character. She was interesting as a leader. Like, she had interesting powers and, like, did interesting things with them for the most part. I, I, like, I liked her as a main character. I just don't understand what made her the one. Her superpowers, the ability to make a leather arm live. <laughs> I mean, I guess. that's kind of what it is. And I guess her willingness to just, like, not listen to her parents to do things. And, like, people having, like, heard the prophecy of the one and being willing to follow her. I, I don't know. I just didn't really... Nah. That yeah. felt like the weakest part of it to me, like, by far. 
again, it feels just like a bunch of ideas all slapped together, but then like never fully realized to the extent that they could be. Because if you're going to do the one trope, either subvert it or fully commit to it where she is like all powerful, everything, she's going to be the one. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, again, it's just, I just don't feel like it fully lives up to that. So I feel sure. a little bit like a broken record when I keep bringing that stuff up. But Yeah, I'm not sure if you can tell how we feel about it. But and again, all of this, like, I feel like I sound super, super critical and I'm not not being critical, but I like I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I think that's the thing is like it is a very enjoyable book and I liked it. But much like when we talked about like Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom, there are a lot of aspects that we wanted more from, even though we still enjoyed it. Mm-hmm, for sure. And I, I don't know, I don't, again, I don't hate it. I really enjoyed rereading it and remembering all these fun little details of the survival. But I think if I had reread the second and third books, I wouldn't have enjoyed them as much. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Just because that's where some of the, the problems start to show through on, like, the not as complete things as I would want them. Um, which I think another thing that you found that wasn't really all that, like stronger put together was the romance aspects yeah i was gonna transition us into how aggressively heterosexual this book is (laughs) um i think it's really interesting how like for an author who's primarily known for her romance which by the way bailey did you happen to see any statistics on how many romance books she has published over 225 over 225 which is insane how do how are people that productive i don't know she must go to the um james patterson school of writing no because um, james patterson has like ghostwriters and stuff and apparently nora roberts does not oh seriously like she just like fucking writes a whole bunch from what i've been able to find because i was looking into this because i'm fascinated by the level of fucking productivity mm-hmm. it could not be me that is right. interesting i figured she maybe like had a couple of like not necessarily like ghostwriters, but people who like help her flesh out her ideas. I do think that maybe her level of productivity means that like she doesn't necessarily spend as much time editing, which maybe contributes to some of the issues that we have with the books. Um, But anyway, um, yeah. So as a romance author, I like didn't find the romance in these books to be particularly strong, um, first of all. So like, uh, like Lana and Max in most of the first book, I thought that that was a pretty decent romance it was pretty fleshed out it had like the book's worth of development yes Um, i really liked their romance because it felt very real and comfortable mm -hmm. um, which i think is an aspect that doesn't get a lot of airtime in traditional romance novels so i liked that i also really liked how like pre-pandemic lana was like really like kind of shallow and vain and she kind of like owned that and like max kind of like knew and loved that about her like, yeah i thought that that was a really like sweet dynamic she of, didn't like, even pack one pair of milano Ma- i know manolo blonics <laughs> i was gonna Milano's. get there you were gonna get there i i can't afford those so why should i be able to pronounce them that's my philosophy extremely true but yeah <laughs> she she literally like had a line where she was like talking about how she didn't even pack any of her luxury stuff and I thought that that was very cute. It was good development for them. Um, and also let Lana have a lot of really good development throughout the series because she had to learn to, like, go without those and, like, overcome her vanity to, like, you know, be a productive member of society. Right. 
Um, so that was all good. That was cute. I also like, I really love Simon Swift. So like, we kind of glossed over it a little bit, but at the end of the first book, Lana leaves New Hope to like protect everyone because everyone that's attacking them is at- really attacking like her and her baby. Um, and then she finds this farm and meets this farmer named Simon Swift, who is just like a really good dude. And he just decides to protect her. And like, she recites some prophecies about how he is going to be like the, f- the other father to Fallon or whatever. And um, it was like really cute. And I think that she did a like moderately good job of building up how much Simon admired her during that whole time before they had the baby. Um, but then by the end, it's just like, well, they're in love forever now. And it's like, that was like a 10th of the book. Whereas like Max and Lana's relationship was built up over the whole book. Well, we had to get um, to Fallon's part. So, you know. Yeah. It just felt um, very thrown together. And I, I hate that because it's one of the parts that I loved the most. I do remember the first time reading that, like, rem- thinking how, like, respectful and how much space Simon, like, gave Lana, clearly knowing all of this was happening. But then, yes, it was like, okay, well, we loved Max. Everybody loved Max. He was great. He was a perfect partner. Now Simon exists. Mm-hmm. Simon is, is a king, though. Also, like, even no, continuing I can't. through the series, every time that um, Lana was like, I still loved Max. Like, you got to deal with that. But I love you now. And, like, when Fallon had to come to terms with, like, having two dads and Simon's just like, yeah, I mean... Max seemed great, and now I have the girls that I love, so no, like, weirdness there. What a kid. Yeah, I was, like, it was it was fine, it just, like, yeah, I agree with you. We, we got all this development in the first book, and then we, we had to get to Fallon's part of the story, so we just, like, bypassed the development of that next relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so, eh, whatever, the story is less about Lana now, it's fine. Yeah, um, but diving into Fallon, also, like... I also really liked Duncan and Fallon individually, and I even liked them together a lot, but I just, like, could not deal with their whole, like, will they, won't they, like, we're supposedly fated to be in love, but, like, we don't want to do what we're fated to do, so we don't want to be in love. I don't know. It was just exhausting more than interesting. Yeah, I guess um, we, we love enemies to lover. We love found family. We don't love this. Yeah, what like whatever this is. I, I couldn't even... come up with anything on the spot. I like started saying that and I was like, this is gonna be funny, and then I was like, no, I can't even call it anything. It's so funny. <laughs> but it, um, like it was I, fine. I want to agree so loudly with this next point that you have in the notes, which is um Fred and Eddie just like were there. So now they're a couple. Yeah. Um, and that that is where the romance author thing I think really shines through is that everybody has to be like coupled up for it to be complete whereas like i could totally see fred just like existing in the community by herself like happy and loving helping and caring for other people mm-hmm. yeah i do i with fred I mean, she really wanted babies. i actually think she like needed five babies so i like i think that that was right but it was like the fact that she had to end up with Eddie just because like they were two of the original like founders of New Hope that just like weren't already paired up like it just felt very like everyone needed a compulsory heterosexual love interest Um, right like Jonah had been in love with the doctor Rachel and like they got together Um, and then um, I don't think Chuck actually got a love interest or I don't remember her 
if he did. Uh, yeah, are we just, like, leaning heavily into the basement dweller trope, which I joked about earlier, but, like... <laughs> Very possibly. Are we just sticking with that? I don't Very know. possibly. I, you're definitely right about Fred needing the babies, because that's actually one thing I was going to say, especially in relation to her caring for others, is, like, Fred definitely needed babies. That was one thing she really just loved when they met uh, Katie and Jonah and Rachel, was that mm-hmm. the babies were there. But I, I just don't know that... Yeah, that she had to end up with Eddie, especially because they have this humongous thriving community now. There's someone out there for Fred that's not, like, the guy who's been there. Yeah, just, like, the other guy that was there. And then, like, Arliss, like, she got paired up with um, the guy who was, like, her childhood friend who, when they founded New Hope, it was in Arliss's hometown. And her, like, neighbor, like, this old guy named Bill oh, was like, yeah. oh, I'm really hoping that my son has made it and will make his way here. And or, I don't think they founded it there. I think they found pre- him and then left. But they, like, left signs for his they son found- to follow. Yeah. And that's how um, Max and Lana ended up finding them. And they picked people up along the way, one of which being Will. Will. Mm-hmm. And so Will finds them and joins them. And then, like, oh, turns out he and Arliss were meant to be. Like, yes, that's exactly again because they, they were both there and heterosexual. They went to check on Arliss's parents. Bill was like the only one left. Bill was waiting for his son, so they left signs. But Will found Max and Lana and joined them, and so yeah, they all ended up in New Hope, and they all ended up in the original couples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just just felt very like, well, two people are there and they're the opposite sex, so now they're in love. Yeah, it, it fits very much with this, like, happy ending, we're not going to kill anybody, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, because it's like, yeah. And Anyways, that, that's, just... that's the true reason that Mick had to die, is because there was no girl to be in love with him, so. Yeah. That's and all I, yeah. It just felt, it felt weak. It felt kind of like a cop-out. It's like a cop-out in the same way with like Harry Potter where, again, sorry to invoke J.K. Rowling. June should also be a J.K. Rowling free month, um, as should every month. But like the fact that everyone from Harry Potter just like married their high school sweetheart. Yeah, that's very true. It's like, and that's a big criticism a lot of people have like over the years with Harry Potter is that like, Ron and Hermione and Ginny and Harry, like, didn't need to end up together just because, like, they had, like, high school romances, essentially, or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And this does smack a little bit of that same Mm -hmm. trope where it's, like, everybody just ends up together. Everybody's happy. And I think that just comes back to the whole, like, they're not going to kill a main character thing either. It's just everybody... This book walks a line, I think, between... Fully committing to fantasy and fully uncommitting from romance. Yeah, I think that's which means a really good point. that it kind of fails at both. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and uh, this all sounds like criticism, and I don't know how many other ways we can say that. Like we, I genuinely <laughs> like a lot of aspects of this book, especially the first one. I like the the humanity. I like how all of these groups of people are there for each other. It's deeply touching that, like, Jonah was going out to just be fucking done 
with mm-hmm. everything when Katie came in. Oh, yeah, I forgot that we didn't even say that, that like Jonah, so he was an EMT and like he was magical and he had this power basically where he could like see basically if you were going to die. And so for like the whole early part of the doom, he was transporting people in ambulances and like could only see death and like everyone that he brought in just died and like everyone that got the doom died of it and he was just like feeling very like done and and like full of despair and he was literally about to kill himself and then katie who is like super pregnant with trent twins like catches him and is like i need you to help me deliver these twins and so and he, he helps. sees all of this light from the twins mm-hmm. which is because they're important to the prophecy of the one so he's like this is the brightest light i've seen in forever blah 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 but then as you said before it's like it doesn't come into play very strongly about the twins, except for that, like, Fallon needs help and, I guess, a love interest. Mm-hmm. Basically. And also, like, why is Duncan her love interest? And, like, what about Antonia? Like, there's two of them in there. Why did they have to be heterosexual? Or, like, like Antonia just, like, really doesn't get anything to do other than, like, vaguely be a badass in the background. Right. So, like, it- why are they even twins? Uh, again, I don't have answers to these questions because it feels like there's a lot of ideas and they're just not all fully conceptualized into this, this novel. Yeah. And I, I do, again, I really like the, the personality bits, the, the character growth in these first ones in the first book. And I haven't read the second or third recently enough to really comment on it. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are strengths of this book. Yeah, I think for for one thing, it's just really fun. Like, the whole trilogy is just a really fun read. Um, it's pretty quick. They're not very chunky for fantasy books. Um, they're, they're just really, like, fun. They're fast-paced. Um, there's decent action. Um, the concepts, even though we've harped and harped on them, like, not really being explored that well, they're very interesting and they're very fun. Um, and then I think one of my favorite parts overall is like, there's a really interesting and good focus on like chosen and found family with like, especially with blended families, like Lana and Simon. And then also like Katie having Duncan and Antonia, but then just like taking Hannah and like claiming Hannah as her daughter when, um, when they found out that her mother had died from the C-section just because she couldn't leave her behind. And like the three of them are just like raised as, not quite triplets, but, like, they're very much siblings. And, like, Hannah is Duncan's sister just as much as Antonia is. Um, that's really interesting. And then also in both of those families, there – and, like, also with Fred and Eddie, even though, you know, we feel meh about them. But, um, like, it's the blending of magical and non-magical. And that's really, like, one of the things that they use to fight – bigotry and the people who are not like full-on like cult bigots but are just like "Mm, i don't know if we should trust those other people um they like show up with the this like beautiful blended magic and non-magic family and they're like "Mm, we do it and it's great and i think that's a really nice i do think one of the strengths is characters like the people Mm -hmm. but i think that so many other things aren't as great as that and so we've harped on them a lot without also giving credit where credit's due that there are some really good things. And the the pacing of the books is very good. Super good. Like, it's clear Nora Roberts writes very well. Mm-hmm. Um, because, the as you said, you could not put them down. The pacing of these books is just on it. Like, I, 
I read um, Book of Night on the plane and then started rereading Year One. And I, I, I like read both of the books a majority on the plane, and uh, Year One definitely had the better like pace and kept my interest better. I was just really interested in in finally finding out what all the drama with like Book of Night by Holly Black was. <laughs> Yeah, and weren't you like, I don't understand the drama at all after I absolutely do not understand the drama. I, like, meant to Google it before this, but also it's not that important. Sure. But, yeah, like, I don't understand why people were so upset about that book. Like, it it was aggressively fine. I did not love this book. I did not hate this book. It, what happened in the book matches the, like, blurb on Goodreads. Um, and I, I even read a bunch of reviews, like maybe the reviews will have like valid reasons this book was whatever, but legitimately one of them was like, I really like Faye and this is Holly Black and there was no Faye. One star. Still a good book though. And it's like, you know, maybe this book just fucking isn't for you. Like just because Holly Black is known for her Faye books, like doesn't mean she can't write anything else and that you get to like rate a book lowly when... A book that does not include Faye and is open about that doesn't have fairies. I yeah, I I always find people's ability to think that everything should be geared directly towards them um, fascinating. Right, and one of them was like this character was not as strong as some of her other characters, like the development of the character. And and sure, I'll give you that. Um, once it was like it's Holly Black's first adult novel. And I do feel like she managed to not fall into the trap of, like, sex, drugs, curse words as as making a book adult. I don't necessarily think that it, like, nailed being an adult book. It, like, you know, I don't think it was her best work. But I also don't think it was, like, so atrocious that it, it like, got all this internet backlash. Especially that tweet about, like, returning a book you didn't like that caused... That was the book in reference to that tweet. Remember mm-hmm. about someone returning yeah, it? Yeah, I do. It was like, okay, so you didn't like the book, so you returned it, which, to be clear, like, Katie and I are fine if you want to return a book. Yeah, it's fine. It's it's fine. Um, It doesn't hurt the author. That's not how royalties work. <laughs> they don't have to give it back. Yeah, no. Um, But people were like, oh, my God, it was terrible. I couldn't finish it. You know what? Fine. I've not finished some books. But I don't understand why this one book seemed to, like, briefly capture, like, book talk and bookstagram's hate. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I, I don't know. Well, on that note, I think my dogs are insisting that we wrap it up. Yeah, they're absolutely done with us recording. So <laughs> do you have any, like, final thoughts about The Chronicles of the One? Uh, I liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, we have our problems with it, obviously, but it's really fun, and you should read it if you want just, like, a fun, quick fantasy trilogy. I really think that's where it shines, is that it has... It's super readable in that it doesn't go too deep. It doesn't get very dark. You get to stay with these characters that you like for, like, a long time. You get to see them, like, grow and develop over a, you know, long period or whatever. Um, and I think it has legitimate criticisms, which I think everyone's allowed to make of books. Which is another uh, book talk hot topic right now is like, you can't criticize books. That's mean. Don't be mean about books because authors worked hard on them. Look, I worked hard on a lot of art projects in high school and I am really fucking bad at art. (laughs) 
Like, I am athletic and I cannot paint. And I did not, like, go on the internet and tell people to never criticize painters because I got a bad review in my art class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. So, I don't know. I think, I think that's just a, our continual, like frustration with book talk being a full space of teenagers for... whose brain are, brains are not done cooking i was gonna say a space full of younger media consumers than <laughs> us i was gonna like be really diplomatic about it katie's just like they're dumb they're, they're young i didn't say dumb i said their brains are not done their brains have some cooking left to do and we'll see how they feel in a decade but until then we are right and we should say it. Pour yourself a glass of wine. Let's start reading in between the lines. Never know what we might find. Yeah, it could be magic. Oh. First Tinted Glasses is hosted by Bailey Utrecht and me, Katie Phillips. Our logo is by Baby Truth Collection, and our theme song is by the wonderful Anna Voss. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. I mean, the good news is we're we're about done. We're just kind of in the wrap up now. But oh yeah. my god, babes, stop. <laughs>